Now to a dire warning about climate change. According to a new report, experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Humans are pushing the natural world to the brink. By our estimates, it's a 30% loss in the total number of breeding birds since 1970, less than 50. The news lately feels like we're in the first 10 minutes of a disaster movie. Dire warnings playing on the television that nobody seems to be taking seriously. I've become fixated on this idea of apocalypse and just how bad things might get. I can't tear myself away from each new article outlining all of the ways our world seems to be spiraling out of control. I have a lot of dread about it. Wondering what the world will be in my lifetime fills up a disproportionate part of my day. Thinking about what climate change and all of its potential disasters means for this broader story of life on this planet, it's nearly all-consuming. So the heart of this podcast is leaning into that existential dread, asking what exactly are we headed towards? How did we get here? And what does it mean if this really is the end of life, society, existence as we know it? I'm Ben Thorpe, and this is Eschatology. So I think a good place to kick all of this off is with a basic question. What's the worst that could happen if we don't take steps to curb carbon emissions and stick on our current trajectory? To get a handle on the world we're heading into, I first went to Kellogg Biological Station in Michigan, where scientists are asking what just three degrees of warming will mean for the local plants. On a small plot of land, a variety of shrubs and flowers, to me indistinguishable from one another, are surrounded by triangular metal scaffolds with space heaters strapped to thin bars that cross over the plants. It looks vaguely sci-fi, but also decidedly low-tech. This weird mixture of big ideas and parts you might find in your parents' garage. And that's going all day and night from, um, we usually run the heaters starting in April and shut them off sometime in October. Meredith Zettelmoyer is one of the lead researchers on the project. She removes the fence intended to keep deer from nibbling on her science and lets me get up close to the heaters, which shoot an additional three degrees Celsius at the plants on the ground. I'm kind of blown by how much hotter that feels. <laughs> this is why we turn them off. <laughs> the question is an important one. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, which puts all the latest research on climate science into one big report, has projected a global temperature rise by 2,100 between 2 degrees and 4.9 degrees. And some scientists say even those numbers are conservative. Nice. So a couple of plots looking at climate change. Yes. Yeah, I think that's emerged as a... Um, as an increasing focus at the LTER. There's like rain out shelters for drought manipulations out here somewhere and yeah, a big area of research here. I mean, it seems like it's probably worth, worth figuring out, right? Yeah, very much so. <laughs> so what exactly does three degrees of warming look like? How about seven? What kind of world are we going to be living in 20 to 30 to 40 years from now? 
One of the people who has thought deeply about what the future of warming holds is David Wallace Wells. Wells is a self-described climate alarmist and the author of The Uninhabitable Earth. He says it's time to panic. First question, can you start by talking about some of the math? Just how much could global temperatures rise and where are we likely to end up? We're right now at about 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than what's called the pre-industrial average, which covers, you know, just about all of human history um, and is the baseline against which all industrial driven warming is measured. So that's 1.1 degrees. Um, The scientific community defines about two degrees as um, the threshold of catastrophe. That would mean at least some of the ice sheets of the world melting. Um, We'd lose them permanently, although the melt would take centuries. It would rise sea levels by many, many feet. Um, It could mean hundreds of millions of climate refugees, according to the UN. And if we stay on the course that we're on now, um, it's projected that we'll get to a little above four degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century. And that That would mean $600 trillion in climate damages, which is about double all the wealth that exists in the world today. It would mean we'd be living with about twice as many wars um, because there's a relationship between climate change and conflict. And it would mean... um, um, It would be catastrophic in just about every way that you you can possibly imagine. I should add here that I spoke with Wells in 2019. Now, in 2021, he's written that the planet is already at 1.2 degrees above normal and that we're quickly losing the fight to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming and maybe even two. What we shouldn't miss, according to Wells, is just how total the changes to our world will be. I think um, one of the things we don't really appreciate about this force is just how completely all-encompassing and all-touching it is. So it impacts economic growth, it impacts public health, it impacts agricultural yields, it impacts Um, You know, there's the sea level rise and river flooding, there's natural disasters, extreme weather, wildfires. Um, But all of those things also put additional pressure on the society that we've built, um, or I should say the societies we've built. And if things get as bad as they're likely to over the course of the century, I think um, many of the basic sort of infrastructure of modern life that we take for granted will come to seem much more... um, precarious and um, unstable. Wells has this habit that you're probably noticing right now of listing all of the disasters so quickly it can be hard to keep track. Over the course of our interview, we ping-ponged from one world-ending implication of climate change right over to the next. It's a habit that has left Wells with more than a few critics. Both his first piece, titled The Uninhabitable Earth, which ran in the New York Magazine, and his book by the same name, were hit with accusations that they were alarmist to the point that they might push readers into a kind of climate nihilism, causing people to give up about the future. Why take action when the world is already doomed? You're kind of talking about it already, but I'm wondering, you know, how do you avoid uh, climate nihilism personally? And, you know, how do you think we avoid this uh, writ large? Um... I think it's inevitable that contemplating what horrors are possible um, will push all of us into some amount of despair and sense of tragedy. But I don't think we should run from that um, because I think it can be motivating. I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, humans are complex creatures and um, we can feel despondent one minute and mobilize the next. And looking more broadly at the population, I think, you know, there are different segments who are going to have different emotional responses to the news. But that shouldn't be an argument for hiding the news from the public. I think we need to know everything we can about the predictions that 
scientists have made um, so that we can better plan um, what actions we do take and we'll be more moved to take more aggressive action. Um, that's sort of the only, the only path forward is through political action. So um, anything that makes that action more likely and more aggressive, I'm all for. And I do think that um, the facts, so to speak, make that argument for us. I think that's one reason that extreme weather, as sort of perverse and horrifying as it is to say, since it involves so much suffering, I think that's one reason why extreme weather has been um, really useful. It is showing us just what ravages climate change can bring, and we're only we're only seeing the beginning of it. I mean, this is um, again we're at 1.1 degrees now. I think we're almost certain to double that warming um, over the next couple of decades, and possibly triple it or more over the course of the rest of the century. And I think it's important to keep in mind you know, almost all climate models end at 2100 because it's a sort of useful end stage bookmark for how we think about these issues. But warming won't end then unless we've completely eliminated our carbon emissions by then. Um, and it's quite possible that the 22nd century could be much, much worse than the 21st. It's one reason it's gotten the epithet, the century of hell. I don't think it's inevitable that we have a century of hell in the 22nd century, but we need to take action to stop it if we if we hope to avoid it. Wells isn't alone in being hit with accusations of climate alarmism. Nathaniel Rich, author of Losing Earth, which chronicles attempts to enact climate change policy in the 1980s, has seen similar critiques around the pessimism the story he tells can engender. We'll hear more from him in a later episode, but I want to let him address his response to those critiques here. And so there's a camp that says we need to f make people be afraid because uh, that, that sort of visceral fear will force action. And there's another camp that says, no, 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 um, we need to inspire people with hope. And, and both sides sort of summon some social science to support their view about the best way of, uh, you know, method of persuasion. That whole conversation feels to me um, almost beside the point. You know, activists are welcome to do whatever they want to do, uh, certainly. If they find that they're raising more money or getting more people to vote by telling scary stories or hopeful stories, they should do that. But I do think it's, a, it's a, almost a crass simplification of a very complex, difficult issue that um, it, it's simplifying in the same way that it's simplifying to say, you know, will we, will we beat this thing or not, you know? Um, it, it's almost like in viewing the problem in, in the terms of a superhero movie. And, and we don't do that when it comes to the other major pressing social crises of our time. We don't do that about race in America. We don't say, should we scare people about race, you know, racial injustice or should we make people hopeful about all the progress we've made? And I think uh, until we have a greater kind of reckoning with, with the scope of this thing, the scale of it, and the ways in which it touches all of our lives, not just you know, the science of it, but the, our, 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 our personal lives and how it affects the way we view our, our, ourselves and our society, then I, I don't think you're going to have the kind of dramatic political transformation that's required. I think this is exactly where I've landed on this. When I first started thinking about this podcast and looking at just how bad things could get, maybe will get, I heard some pretty strong reactions from people to not look too hard. It's dark, depressing, disheartening stuff. So why look? Why fixate on this at all? As Rich says, we can't really address these issues if we aren't first willing to look at them. Naomi Klein, another long-standing climate alarmist, in her book, This Changes Everything, describes the many kinds of looking away we tend to engage in when it comes to climate change. Or maybe we do look, 
really look. But then, inevitably, we seem to forget. Remember, and then forget again. Climate change is like that. It's hard to keep it in your head for very long. We engage in this odd form of on-again, off-again ecological amnesia for perfectly rational reasons. We deny because we fear that letting in the full reality of this crisis will change everything. And we are right. So next up, we're going to lean in on that apocalyptic alarmism. Let's start simple, turning the heat dial up just a little bit to see what happens. Dr. Tama Carlton is with the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. She says there's a large body of research done on what happens to people when the temperature starts to rise. A 2011 study published in the Journal of Criminal Justice found that when temperatures increased in Philadelphia, the number of robberies also increased. Similar links have been found for aggravated assaults in L.A. And weirdly, the number of batters hit by angry pitchers in Major League Baseball rises dramatically under just a few degrees of warming. Carlton says one of her former colleagues, Patrick Bayless, has looked at the impact of heat on human aggression using Twitter. And so um, he, he found uh, that, that people are have much more negative sentiment on uh, on Twitter when it gets hotter. Uh, and in particular, people misspell words a lot more, but they're also angrier. So a lot more curse words um, and other expressions of anger increase uh, on Twitter on hot days. Carlton says what researchers want to understand is why. And the motivation is not just, you know, we want to know how Twitter looks on hot days, but really that he was trying to unpack this link between violence and temperature. So we see, like I said before, we see these increases in violence in many different parts of the world on hot days, but we're not totally sure about the mechanism. How, what, what is really making that link? And so um, what Patrick was trying to help us see is, is that in this other form of expression, we, just, we see that people are expressing themselves more negatively, more angrily on this very public forum uh, of Twitter. And that sort of is consistent with this literature on violence and aggression. Carlton's own research looks at a similar link between heat increases and suicide. Other researchers have tracked how temperature increases have affected suicide rates in the U.S. and Mexico. But Carlton focused her work on India. Yeah. So in India, the suicide rate um, has been really dramatically increasing over time. The overall rate has doubled since 1980. And there's been a lot of questions about why that is the, the case and a lot of sort of anecdotes and, and questions about many different drivers of that increase. Um, and one sort of hypothesis was that um, this was really being driven by economic hardship for farmers. And that could be both due to changes in things like trade policy, but also changes in the climate that may be damaging um, farmers' crops. Carlton said she hypothesized that climate change might have been linked to what was going on with the ballooning rates of suicide in India. And so I went to the data to try to answer whether that story about the climate uh, might be true. And uh, what I found was that across India, when temperatures reach levels that damage crops during the growing season, and we see those crops being damaged, that's when we see increases in suicide rates. So I found a link between increases in temperature and increases in suicide rates, but it really looks like it's operating through damages in, in crop yields. 
All told, Carlton says she's linked about 60,000 suicides in India since 1980 to increases in temperature. What that amounts to is a concrete measurement and additional human misery caused by dialing the planet's temperature up just a little bit. There is a measurable impact to human life tied to rising temperature. So we can think about climate change out into the future, but we also have already started to experience some changes in our climate. Um, and in India, that has manifest as 60,000 additional suicides that would not have otherwise occurred had that warming not taken place. It's also worth mentioning, I think, that this is connected to the former protests currently taking place in India. While those protests aren't directly about climate change, farmers are protesting changes to Indian laws that they say will leave them more vulnerable to corporate takeover. There's no question that what's happening is being exacerbated by changing weather patterns and increasing heat. This is what David Wallace-Wells means, I think, when he talks about how all-encompassing climate change is. It doesn't just impact weather. It touches economics and politics, race and class, all of the different organizing structures that our societies are built on. Rising temperatures aren't just impacting the farmers harvesting crops, they are also impacting the crops themselves. A 2017 study found that for each degree Celsius of warming, corn yields fell by roughly 7% globally. For rice and beans, those numbers were closer to 3%. But it isn't just the decline in the amount of food that will be produced as temperatures rise. There also seems to be shifts in the quality of that food. Louis Ziska. Louis Ziska is a former researcher with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Former because he quit along with many of his colleagues, because he says critical research wasn't being funded under the Trump administration. Ziska's research with the USDA looked at rice. We were looking at a more in-depth uh, analysis of rice in particular, because rice is the most important global food crop, um, particularly among the poorest uh, nations. Ziska looked at what happened in the nutritional content of rice when it was exposed to higher levels of CO2. And what we found uh, using... in in field conditions is that there is a consistent decline induced by rising CO2 with respect to minerals, with respect to protein, with respect to vitamins. And the basis of that is then part of the overall food insecurity uh, analysis. That is, we know that climate per se can affect harvests, can affect production, but CO2 per se can also affect quality. And that's an important consideration when you start looking at uh, the overall effect in terms of how people are going to eat in the future. The implications of Ziska's research could be major, knowing that higher temperatures could reduce crop yields and that those crop yields might also be less nutritious means it's increasingly difficult to feed growing human populations. One question I asked Ziska is what we know about how much nutrition will decline as CO2 increases. How much has it already declined? And most importantly, is there a point where the decline might be expected to level off? Um, that's, again, one of the key unknowns is how much has it recently changed? How much will it change in the future? And 
at the moment, we, we don't have the resources to follow that up. Ziska says one of the ways his team tried to get around a lack of federal support for the research was to look at historical records. His team used records from the Smithsonian to track similar changes in goldenrod, which they chose because goldenrod proteins are an important food source for bees. And we went to the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. They were very kind. They were very nice. We were able to look at some of the samples that went back 100 years or so. And we looked at um, and we tried to analyze the protein in that, in that pollen because bees need protein. And what we found, um, to our surprise, was that there was a decline since the 1840s of about 30%. So that suggests very strongly that the recent change in CO2 uh, due to the Industrial Revolution is also de causing a decrease in an important pollen source for pollinators. And one of the unknowns, again, when you start looking at the commonality of the effect of CO2 on protein is does this happen for others, you know, other plants and other species? If the decline Ziska has seen in rice and goldenrod hold true across all plant nutrition, that could have wide-ranging impacts and may point to yet another factor influencing a decline in a variety of insects and animals. So, for example, um, panda bears uh, rely on bamboo as their primary food source. And if rising CO2 reduces protein concentration in, in bamboo, which is, seems likely, what does that mean for, you know, bam, what does it mean for panda diets? We don't know. Uh, what does it mean for the food chain globally? We don't know. Um, this is, again, these are, these are absolutely critical issues, questions that we need to begin to address. And we just unfortunately at the moment don't have the resources to begin to do that. Yeah. Would it be fair to say this is, uh, you know, another area where w the information that we do have is very concerning, but as you're saying, there's just a lot that we don't know. And so, uh, again, maybe makes sense to try to reduce the amount of CO2 that we're putting into the atmosphere now, given what we know about uh, what is possibly happening at a global scale. It's something that we need to focus on, not just as and not just dismiss as CO2 as plant food, but to examine it, to understand it, to relate it in context to what it means in terms of ecosystems, but also in terms of what it means for human culture and civilization. I, that sounds a little over the top, and I don't mean it to be, but it's obviously important, and we need to find out more about it. You know what? Maybe one last question. How are you... Uh feeling, I guess, on in terms of hope? Is there hope here on this? I'm always reminded of the, of the quote from Churchill about, Amer you know, Americans will always do the right thing after they've exhausted all the other possibilities. So I'm hoping that that will still hold true. Okay. Hey, thank you so much. I, I ask that only because I've been talking to a lot of different scientists about different angles of this, including the insect apocalypse. And uh, it, it, the question always comes back to that, which is just like, I mean, given the data, given what we're looking at, this is pretty heavy stuff. Heavy doesn't begin to do it justice. Um, it's life altering. And it's one of those things that uh, off, off, off the record. Yeah, off the record. Unless the, the biggest source of scientists that we have right now. Our, our biggest resource is the U.S. government. And we have absolutely no incentive, no 
direction, no uh, means to go forward on this. And, you know, we've talked about some of the challenges of it and the implications of some of it, the impacts. They're, they're, they're enormous and they're happening in unprecedented amount of time. And we are simply, you know, ill-equipped. So I'm leaving USDA and I'm starting a new job at Columbia. And so I can't, I can't do this anymore. It's too, it's too damn frustrating. Whew. Um, okay. Any, so, anything else? <laughs> well, anytime I don't end up in a fetal position under my desk, it's a good day. <laughs> okay? Okay. Hey, I, I hear you got another call coming in. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. At the time, Ziska didn't want me to air this, but uh, since he left, I reached out and he agreed to let us air his decision to leave the USDA. Next up, we'll look at human limits. Just how hot can we get? questions moving forward is just how much temperature the human body can take and what that means for large chunks of the globe. Right. So um, so you've got a core body temperature of uh, 37 Celsius or, or about 99 degrees Fahrenheit. And um, basically heat will only flow out of your body if the Skin is cooler than that. So This is Stephen Sherwood. He's a professor at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. He published a paper in 2009 about human adaptability limits. At the time, he says, concerns about heat stress and an upper limit to what the human body could handle were almost non-existent. But I think in the 10 years since this paper came out, uh, that's really changed. And now um, I often see heat lists sorry, heat stress as the top concern about global warming. Sherwood's paper measured what's called the wet bulb temperature. Basically, imagine a hot day and you've got a thermometer. You wave the thermometer in the air and the temperature shown on that thermometer will decline some because fanning helps cool the thermometer off. But if you put a wet rag over that thermometer, it can't cool off. The water helps trap in the heat. The human body works in the same way and is only able to dispense heat when the air around your body is cooler than the temperature of the body itself, that 97 degrees Fahrenheit level. Now, obviously, you can spend some time outside on a 110 degree day, but... That's independent of any adaptation that you're capable of. I mean, people get used to hot weather. They they, uh, increase their ability to perspire and um, various other things, but this is a physical limit. And if you get past that physical limit, it just means that um, eventually you would cook if you didn't find a cooler place. What Sherwood is describing is areas that wouldn't ever get cool enough to allow humans to cool off. At night, deserts cool off, and currently humid areas aren't consistently at temperatures that can cook a person. But if the temperature dial on the planet were nudged up, say, 11 degrees, humid areas could stay so hot that there would be no point when a person could cool off. Well, it so happens that the areas of high humidity are areas of high rainfall, and areas of high rainfall are areas where people live because people need water. Sherwood says it could take 100 years of not curtailing fossil fuel use and an 18-degree increase in global average temperatures, but the impacts would be catastrophic. What we calculate in the paper 
was that um, I think 11 degrees Celsius of warming, so that would be about uh, 18 Fahrenheit in the global average, would be enough to bring half of the world's population to impossibility uh, of, of living. Now, that's, that's a lot of warming. I really hope and kind of doubt that that will ever happen. But even a fraction of that is going to prove to be, I think, challenging. It's a dramatic warning, but one that Sherwood says he hopes is going to push people towards action. I, if, you, if you look at this result squarely and you look at what we know about climate and carbon, uh, it really tells you that every ton of carbon that you put in the atmosphere is going to do some is going to push you closer. And um, there isn't really any going back. So uh, you have to find a way to decarbonize completely. Back in Michigan, nearly 10,000 miles away from where Sherwood sits in Australia, the impacts of just three degrees of warming showed Meredith Zettelmoyer that native plants could be handily outcompeted by invasive ones. Um, what we found was that it was the non-native species that were able to okay. respond to warming by shifting their flowering about 11 days earlier under um, the warmed, uh, warmed temperatures. Um, so that potentially gives them earlier access to resources, earlier access to pollinators that gives them an advantage over the native species where we didn't see any response to warming. They just kept doing what they were doing. Zettelmoyer says the findings suggest that shifting temperature could mean drastic changes for local ecosystems in which invasive species overwhelm native ones. But what any of that means for humans, or whether there's an upper limit to what even invasive species can adapt to, isn't known. I do not know. Most studies are kind of keeping in right now the, the range in the IPCC report, and there haven't been that many that have kind of pushed that that extreme scenario threshold, even though that's now reported to be the most likely. So that's probably next step in warming studies is, is cranking it up. What we don't know about climate warming could impact us. And hopefully you're starting to realize just how much is unknown in some pretty striking ways. David Wallace-Wells, in his book, Uninhabitable Earth, uses the example of a Siberian antelope called the Saiga. In 2015, an estimated 200,000 Saiga suddenly dropped dead. Yeah, it was uh, a, what's called a, a, um, a megadeath. Um, basically, the entire species was, was wiped out by a bacteria that had been living peacefully inside it for probably millions of years. And the temperature conditions, the climate conditions changed. It was an unusually hot and humid summer. And something in those factors triggered the development of this bacteria into something that had been quite um, complementary to the, to the antelope and then became um, totally devastating, the opposite, and killed just about every single one of them in this large part of Siberia where they're based. The point isn't that humans need to worry about any bacteria living in our body that could suddenly turn hostile under warming, although maybe that's true too. The point is that there's so much we don't know about how the world is put together and could suddenly be shifting in ways we don't yet understand. But the example of the Saiga is a quite scary one and should give us pause about blithely walking into a climate future full of threats like these. I mean, that's just one of, of many, many, many um, threats that climate change will bring about and, and show it, show, um, force us to face. And I think it's possible, you know, to have a kind of an optimistic, technocratic um, response to many of these threats 
when you consider them individually. But when you think about the whole mass, the whole scope of the problems that we're likely to be dealing with if we don't change course immediately, it makes it seem that much more urgent that we must change course because that, however complicated it seems to cut emissions rapidly, that will be much, much easier, leaving us much healthier, much more prosperous, much safer than if we walked into a climate future of two or three or four degrees of warming, where just about everything that we know to take for granted as a permanent feature of life on this earth would be disrupted in some way, and in many ways quite, um, quite catastrophically. What all of this drives home is the fragility of our planet, how difficult it is to know what's happening around us and whether we've already disrupted the many complex and complicated systems that make up our world past a series of tipping points. But what Wells stresses again and again and again is that in spite of how bleak all this is, there's still time to change things, even if that only means averting the most extreme apocalyptic scenarios. For me, this is the importance of looking at how bleak the future might get. Even as things are already changing, it helps drive home the importance of stopping things from getting that much worse, from letting the world get just a little bit closer to uninhabitable. There's still time, maybe not to undo things, but at least to ensure our collective survival. And we have to, because this world is all we've got. This is Eschatology, and I'm Ben Thorpe. Both Ryan Hopper and Ryan Faber, my two Ryans, uh, are responsible for the music on this show. Huge, huge thank you to them. Huge, massive, unending thank yous to uh, everyone who helped listen to the show, offer advice, make it better. I still probably need an editor, but thank you to, to all my close friends who served as that role gently, unpaid. Uh, I, I do appreciate you. Uh, the show obviously has a host of research. I'm going to try to link to as much of it as possible. Um, I'm going to put some of it in the description. Some of it's going to end up on Twitter if it doesn't fit. I think there's a kind of character limit. So uh, if you have any questions about something you heard and you're like, Ben, where in God's name did you get this information? Uh, just hit me up and I'll, I'll try to send you a link. Okay. Uh, I think that's everything. Uh, goodbye for real. <laughs>